3: Hi everyone, it's Lila. We are still off this week for the holidays, but we're sharing another show with you that we think you'll enjoy, especially if you're craving more art talk. It's Slate's Culture Gabfest. The Gabfest is a weekly show featuring culture critics Stephen Metcalf, Dana Stevens, and Julia Turner. We love it, but so does the New York Times critic Dwight Garner, who says the Slate Culture Gabfest is one of the highlights of my week. The episode we're sharing discusses three topics. First is Renaissance, a film by Beyonce. Then they explore the tonal and emotional tenor of Todd Haynes's May December. And finally, an answer to the pressing question, did we really need a sequel to How the Grinch Stole Christmas? To follow the show, search Culture Gab Fest wherever you get your podcasts, and we will be back on Friday, January 5th. With that, here's Stephen. Yeah.
1: I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. The Beehive Swarms, the box office edition. It's Wednesday, December 6th, 2023. On today's show, Renaissance, the concert film produced, starring and everything else. Uh, Queen, diva, Beyonce. But she's so much more than a diva. This is so much more than a concert movie. And anyway, it, it won the weekend, and we'll discuss. We're joined by Slate's own Nadira Goff for that segment. And then... The director Todd Haynes returns with May-December, the story of the extended afterlife of a wildly inappropriate and age-discrepant relationship that resulted in a marriage and children. It stars Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore. And finally, how much Grinch is too much Grinch? We will discuss a new Grinch book, a posthumous Grinch sequel with Slate's own Dan Coyce. But uh, joining me first is Julia Turner of the L.A. Times. Hey, Julia. hello. Hello. And, of course, Dana Stevens, face-to-face.
4: Hey, Steve. Good to see you face-to-face.
1: All right, let's make a show. Beyoncé, she is no stranger to making documentaries about herself. She's, after all, a diva. And a diva is her own muse, QED. This is her third, though, in about a decade. But Renaissance, a film by Beyoncé, feels somehow definitive in a way that its predecessors maybe did not. It is to begin with a three-hour concert film-ish. Roughly three hour concert film, but it's really much, much more. It's also a backstage arena tour procedural, a Verite peekaboo behind the scaffolding and into her life and creative processes something of a personal diary. We'll get into whether that's real or not real. Anyway, she unsurprisingly sums up the movie best, I think. Being a black woman, everything is a fight, she says. Eventually, they realize this bitch will not give up. All right, we, uh, what we have for a clip is a piece of the trailer. Let's, uh, let's have a listen.
5: Time is my biggest obstacle. It's impossible to not realize how fast it's going when you are looking through the eyes of your children. I think about all of my heroes And all that they endured I know that all of my struggle and sacrifice Is opening the door for the next They are the new beginning I wanna house you And make it take my name I'm gonna spouse you Touch a ring. I'm I have nothing to prove to anyone at this point. Baby, we are creating our own world.
1: Okay, well, for the segment, we're joined by uh, Slate's culture writer Nadira Goff, and very, very good and close friend of this program. Nadira, welcome back.
5: Oh, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this movie.
1: I'm really excited to talk about it with you. Where do you even begin, Nadira? I'm going to let you pick. There's a, This is a Beyoncé smorgasbord. There's a lot to choose from. I mean, as someone who has studied and in some ways exalted while critically in her career and persona, where did this bring you if you maybe hadn't been before uh, with her and her work?
5: Yeah, I think that this movie is really surprising in a lot of ways in terms of A lot of things, but specifically the way that Beyonce is presenting herself and her craft and her life. And so for the majority of her career, she's really been someone who has prided herself on this idea of perfection. You know, she strives for perfection. She achieves perfection. All of her shows sort of run like, as she says in the movie, a well-oiled machine. And in this film, she's breaking down that idea of perfection. Now, mind you, it's still her creation. It's still this idea of imperfection in her specific lens. But it's interesting to me that the tone and theme of this film is I want to actually show you the process I want to actually show you what life is like when things go wrong I want to actually show you what happens when I mess up or when you know a family member messes up or when something just goes awry and I don't want you to come away thinking that I'm perfect or that this is just effortless I want you to come away thinking that this was hard work that it involved a lot of people and that I am actually a very flawed human being who's just trying my best again some of the ways that she depicts that can be a little bit you know hagiographic a little bit eye-rolly but for the most part i think it's a really interesting shift in how she's presenting herself and her idea um as what beyonce is as a you know persona or an icon
1: right i mean there's kind of like the jumbotron self that a pop star operating at this scale has to perfect.
5: There's an illusion, at
1: least, of intimacy that they also have to perfect. And there's a natural tendency to cultish hagiography when someone does master life at that kind of global pleasing scale. But that can be alienating. So you also have to come off as human. Dana, I'm interested in this as a work of cinema. An easy contrast is with the Taylor Swift movie. We don't have to belabor it, but this is given the jump cuts that you can talk about maybe a little bit this is clearly a work of cinema it's not just a filmed concert
4: yeah i'm glad you asked me that specific question because that's exactly how i wanted to address it as i was making notes i i almost it was almost like i wanted to to acknowledge and set aside beyonce as a performer and her self-presentation as one thing to talk about which nadira just opened with and we'll talk about more and then this nearly 3 hour long Thing that's showing in movie theaters, right? Um, which I think of of the films that she's made, it's the first one that's had that kind yeah. of theatrical projection um, as a work of cinema. And I have to say that while I found her a jaw dropping performer, and I was really glad to have seen the movie just to to get some sense of what it would be like to be at a, a Beyonce concert. I don't think this totally works as a piece of cinema, and it felt nearly three hours long to me for reasons that had nothing to do with the concert clips that mm. were all spellbinding, that it, that had more to do with... Aesthetic choices that were made. Okay, the editing, since you mentioned it. Uh, Something that this movie does very deliberately that's very different from a movie like the Taylor Swift documentary or Stop Making Sense, right? The classic Mm -hmm. Talking Heads concert doc that we just discussed is that it doesn't try to create the illusion that you're at one concert, right? In fact, it deliberately plays with that idea by, by cutting from... Describe it this way. Within a single performance, right, you'll suddenly see after one cut, wait, Beyonce's in a different costume and all her background dancers are in different costumes. This has to be a different night. And then it'll go back to the original one, then go to some other one. And part of the effect of that is to show you the mind bending array of incredible couture costumes that she has on, which I hope Julia will touch on later. But another thing that it does is tell you, this is not the same concert. This is a movie showing off its its editing precision, right? So that somehow she and her background dancers are all in the exact same position so that this cut seems seamless, even though they're dressed differently, so it has to be a different night. And... I guess that's kind of a virtuosic tour de force of editing. But to me, it also underlined the um, the mechanistic angle of this mm-hmm. show, right? I mean, you would have to, and many reviews of the movie have observed this, you would have to choreograph something so precisely to be sure that, you know, the angles would work in the cut. And to me, that... That almost it served to undercut the kind of spontaneity and authenticity that Beyonce is trying to to telegraph, right? And so that that to me, there's this cognitive dissonance in this movie where she's working so hard to show you, look, I'm showing you all my flaws, right? This the song "Flaws and All" is one of the first uh, songs in the movie, but that lack of virtuosity is being shown to you with incredible virtuosity. So I never kind of felt that I was really glimpsing anything more real than than you would glimpse if you were at the show itself.
1: Interesting. And this this gives me, a, a, Dana, a great double pivot to Julia, because it's both... Julia, it reminds me of something you once said about her that has stayed with me uh, ever since, which is that if nothing else blows you away about this performer, she always hits her mark. Um, to the degree that every performance would be seamlessly the same if that's what she so chews... And so I'd love to hear you talk about the relationship between this person's cyborg-like perfectionism, which some of the costumes really get at. There's a kind of weird Donna Haraway, I am a hybrid creature, I am both human and digital and metallic all at once, that's weirdly seductive but also alienating, um, mixed in with all of the couture. I'm just curious to hear you talk about both the marketing and the costumes.
0: Well, I'll try to come at that from both angles, Steve. I mean, first, I loved this movie. I wept during this movie because I felt so moved by her brilliance and by her growth. So I like fell for it completely that this was a more mature sharing of herself and like comfort with beginning to reveal person behind all that technique. I mean, I remember on this show we discussed the documentary she made for I think HBO 10 years ago that was like so it was sort of the dawn of famous people producing their own documentaries and I remember us being like, "Well, this trend sucks. <laughs> like this is the most <laughs> boring possible documentary <laughs> you could see. Yeah, you know, I've learned nothing." And I so on on an emotional level, I felt like deep catharsis. I felt inspired. I felt like I wanted to be a better person. I I like it really, really got to my viscera in a way that I've like experienced with Beyonce on the dance floor, obviously, but like, I don't know that I've experienced watching her as a kind of cultural figure in the same way. Um, at the same time, I also had a, a kind of intellectual response to it, which is about just the hyper evolution of celebrity. And we had this thought about the the Beckham doc too, like we're 10 years into to celebrities producing their own documentaries and they've gotten smarter about it. And they know that if I make something completely boring and sanitized that doesn't answer and address the obvious questions that we have about them, we will smell it and hate it and mm. move on. On a pure mechanical level, Dana, when I first walked into the theater and saw those quick changes between the costumes, I was like, what the hell is this? I'm so confused. And then I, I, it pulled me in and the kind of, I don't know, like riotous precision? Is that a thing that can be? It seemed like what it was to me. And it it was, I'm so glad I got to see all those costumes. They were fucking incredible. And so I loved, I loved the kind of just sheer inventiveness that was on display, and I just went for it hook, line, and sinker.
1: I loved it, too. I was Mm. completely floored by it. I've been immune to this performer's charisma, charm, talents, while knowing they're there. They don't affect me at all. This altered completely within about five minutes. Not even five minutes. First of all, she begins... Nadir, she opens with two numbers standing perfectly still at a microphone. I mean, she's extraordinarily dressed and an extraordinary presence. She doesn't move to be captivating. But it just emphasizes her status as a singer for two full songs. I mean, maybe the second one goes into a larger break and then there's movement. But effectively, she begins with her voice foregrounded. And unlike certain other performers who will go unnamed, I think she actually has the voice to carry a three-hour concert as a concert. And then the cinematics of it, the stagecraft of it, the extent to which she showed you that this is not one city traveling around the globe en masse, complete with nurses, seamstresses, and every other kind of specialized labor there is. It's actually, in in a sense, three, that there are two entirely separate sets that are at the following two cities that she's going to go to setting up in order to make the timing of the tour work. Just the sheer gigantism of it um, and the kind of... The Steve Jobs-like... X factor that it takes to have a central personality driving the whole thing, a.k.a. her, I thought was very powerful and very moving. I'm, like Julia, I'm very skeptical of celebrities getting good, good at the illusion of intimacy, and that stops me short a little bit, but by and large, I was won over. I cannot describe how completely I was not bored for one second in the course of the three hours.
5: I'm so glad to hear that, and I just want to say one thing. I was at the show. I went to the Renaissance tour this summer. And I think for me with a concert film, my favorite concert film of all time is Stop Making Sense. The most important thing to me is if you can convey the energy of what it's like to Mm. be Mm -hmm. in that room through a screen, which is really hard to do. And I have to say, I've never been to a show that felt so euphoric where every single person there, I mean, even the people running the concession stands, were smiling and happy to be there and enjoying everybody else's specialty costumes that they had planned months to make. And we're just reveling in this beauty of this special moment that an artist could give us. And I know that that sounds super cheesy, but it was real. It was really, really real. Like, it is. It makes me emotional to think about it, to be honest. And I feel like this movie did such a good job of bringing you there and portraying that and then also sort of incorporating the history of the queer ballroom culture and all of the things that sort of built this sound of this Renaissance album and then this show and this tour. And I just find that to be so revelatory in a way that's even a step up from Beyonce's previous concert film, Homecoming, which I think is amazing. It's great. I'm pretty sure that I have a blurb about it in Slate's black film canon. But to me, this is even, you know, one step above that in terms of just showcasing that pure, really free energy that everyone in the room had that she facilitated for everyone at those shows on those nights. Mm.
4: I'm going to be an outlier and say that I think that my favorite film that she's produced so far is Homecoming. For me, Homecoming telegraphed that feeling of what it would have been like to be at that Coachella set. Maybe more than this. Of course, I wasn't at the concert, but this felt a little bit more like it felt like an artifact. I mean, it it, it, it wanted to make itself feel like an artifact of an entire tour. And so while it was sort of a a stunning object to behold on the screen, I didn't feel as much like I was being caught up in the energy of a live show. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah, I feel like I'm the outlier on, on being utterly, utterly blown away by this movie. But I still think people should go see it, whether or not they consider themselves Beyonce fans, as Steve, you just demonstrated.
1: All right. The movie is Renaissance, a film by Beyonce. It's in theaters. Uh, it's worth worth checking out. Uh, to put it mildly, Nadir Gough, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's always just a total pleasure.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: All right, well, the film director, Todd Haynes, has been making courageously weird, bewitching films ever since Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, went on to make Safe, Far From Heaven, Carol, so many great movies. If he makes it, I want to see it. The formula is very simple. He returns with May-December, the story about two women. One, played by Natalie Portman, is a famous actress who travels to Savannah to research her role in an upcoming film. The object of her close study in Georgia is grace played by julianne moore who 23 years earlier seduced a seventh grade boy then while serving a prison term for statutory rape gave birth to his baby and then on release married him only superficially is the movie based on the mary kay letourneau story the film is really a study of love subordination denial and even hollywood cynicism as they come to mingle in the grayest of imaginable gray areas uh, it also stars Charles Melton as the now grown-up man-boy who's the father of her children and husband. In the clip, you're going to hear the voices of Natalie Portman as Elizabeth, Julianne Moore as Grace, Portman's characters, working hard in the scene to try to get to know Grace better. Let's uh, Let's listen.
3: When they sent me the script, I just thought, now here is a woman with a lot more to her than... I remember from the tabloids and our, uh, cultural memory. Um, I don't really th- think about all that. You don't ever dwell on the past? I, I, <laughs> I have my plate pretty full. Hmm. I mean, I know that for me, personally, the past weighs on me. You know, decisions I've made or relationships. So you just sit there and you you think about your history and your and your behavior. Sometimes.
1: Dana, let me start with you. I, I'm curious what your history is with Haynes as a filmmaker. I imagine you're an admirer and what you made of this one.
4: I mean, just briefly on Haynes as a filmmaker. Yeah, I, I'm a total fangirl. And yeah. I think I feel with him like I got on, in on the ground floor because I was lucky enough in college when Superstar... Came out, but it never really came out, right? I it mean, was it was very kind of, hard
1: to find. It was Samasthai. Well,
4: it's because of, you know, yeah, of, 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 of IP, whatever legal reasons. Uh, Superstar, his first film, which was a, a sort of a short film, it was in between a short yeah. and a feature, was this crazy telling of the Karen Carpenter story with Barbie dolls. And because Mattel had never approved it, and I think it also had music stuff that hadn't been approved it was an underground movie that you could only see in Haynes' presence, right? If it was being shown in an educational institution or something for years and years and years. And we had a great college film society that happened to get a hold of Todd Haynes and Superstar. And so I got to see it when it really was an underground object. And he was this, you know, brand new, like handsome, smart, exciting <laughs> yeah. filmmaker. And uh, and so ever since then, I've had this feeling like whatever he does, same as you, whatever he does, yeah. I want to see it. I haven't loved every movie equally, but I so love that he's always changing and experimenting. You know, the Velvet Underground documentary that he made a few years ago. Just gorgeous, right? Just a great um, film. And the first thing I would say about May-December, which I will say is not in my top niche of Todd Haynes' movies, but is, you know, a, a sort of thrillingly weird watch, is that it has one of the strangest tones of any movie that I've seen in several years. And so it's actually very pleasing to me that it's kind of hitting with audiences. I mean, critics liked it at festivals, you know, that it, as it opened over the past year. But when I saw it at the New York Film Festival, I thought, I cannot imagine that this is going to land very well with your average audience member, because it's so impossible to know how to respond to it emotionally, right? It's about this really queasy subject matter, but it opens almost as a comedy. You know, it's sort of a dark comedy. It has these elements of melodrama mixed into it. It's really hard to figure out who to identify with. I mean, Both of these two women, uh, Natalie Portman's character and Julianne Moore's are pretty awful even from the beginning and reveal themselves to be more and more awful as the movie goes on. (laughs) Late in the movie, we sort of settle on Charles Melton's character, Joe... Uh, as not the hero of the movie exactly because he's so passive and so acted upon by everyone else, but, you know, someone that you feel enormous sympathy for and, and fear for. There's a moment, when, not to spoil anything, but there's a moment that you think something physically dangerous is going to happen to to Joe, to Charles Melton's character. And it's it, to me, that was the moment that I realized, wait, I am invested in this movie because if something happened to him, it would be absolutely terrible. Anyway, I want to hear, Julia, what you, wh- how you responded to the tonal... An emotional tenor of the movie. I know that Haynes has not liked the fact that people are calling it camp. You know, a lot of reviews Mm -hmm. have identified the movie as campy, and he has kind of responded to that in a somewhat prickly way, saying that he he didn't intend it as camp, which made me relieved that I didn't use that word in my review. But I can see why it's being used, because it's really hard to tell whether we're supposed to laugh, cry, shudder, run out of the room screaming, or what, upon watching May-December.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about this film. And I, I should uh, disclose here that I know some folks involved in making the film. So you should take my comments here with a bit of a grain of salt. Um, but I really, really loved it. I'm not the biggest fan of Todd Haynes's. And not that I'm not a fan. I'm an admirer who is not, who who never watches his films and feels like, ooh, that one really twanged my internal guitar string, you know, like I mostly have thought about Carol, I would like all of those coats. Um, And in this one, I just thought it was so nervy and strange. And I liked that the cinematography was looser and lighter. It didn't have that like lacquered jewel box feeling of um, Far From Heaven or Carol. And what was interesting about the tone to me, and the reason why camp feels like the wrong word is that I think it's quite sincerely emotionally curious about how humans operate and the stories and lies that they tell themselves to justify their behavior. And I don't think of camp as a mode that's about the sincere exploration of human emotion. You know, despite the fact that these women are both operating in in the public eye, one through her awful behavior that resulted reasonably in a national scandal and the other through just being a famous, you know, TV actress who's turning heads when she walks through rooms. Um, they're both trying to kind of find the underlying human reality in justifying their behaviors and, I found that to be really resonant and interesting. And then I found the film to be so compelling in exploring that kind of pedestrian self-justification in the confines of these very extreme situations. Um, So it really, it moved me.
1: Mm. I think this may be, it's, it's up there with my favorite movies of the year. And one of my, I mean, there's so many to choose from, but one of my favorite Todd Haynes movies I think Melton is amazing in the film as as this man boy who has never been fully allowed to um, develop as a human being, and the way he as an actor physicalizes it is so subtle and yet so totally expressive, and it comes home to you. I mean, he's kind of he's a physically large man who's kind of tightened and shrunken into himself because of the low level manipulations and torments of being married to this woman uh, who's always going to be the senior partner in the relationship. But then there's an extraordinary moment where he's driving his children who's had with her, I think just the two daughters who are in the back seat. And his body is suddenly expansive and open and free because he's just out of her orbit. And he's a good father. I mean, it's such a complex movie with so much economy in some sense. I mean, y- you learn what you need to know about him in that moment. Um, to me, it's fundamentally a movie centered around two women in a mirror, in some sense. There, that there are at least two, to me, central scenes in the film where Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore are looking into a mirror, but the mirror is itself the lens of the camera. And, um, and the kind of peculiar subterranean romance that they've developed with one another as they, they're, they're each using the other in ways that's highly complex but deeply seductive, um, especially Portman, right? Because this movie is in many ways a study of an actress, Janet Malcolming. A person, right? So Malcolm is famous. Janet Malcolm, the journalist, is famous for saying every journalist who's not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what's going on knows what he does is morally indefensible. He's a kind of confidence man, preying upon people's vanity, ignorance, or loneliness, gaining their trust, and betraying them without remorse. The movie's both a study in the kind of damage this Woman who seduced a boy has wrought not only on him but on her children, right? Which comes out also very economically, but is deeply sinister and heartbreaking. But it's also the story of this Portman character, Janet Malcolming, in the most cynical, manipulative, cold-hearted way. This woman's vanity, um, in order to ultimately betray her, to you know, to portray her in a way that won't honor what this narcissist thinks her own story is. The layers of complication conveyed with very little dialogue and exposition. It's. I just think it's a brilliant movie.
4: I wonder in relation to that, what you both thought of Natalie Portman's performance. There's a great piece in, in Slate uh, by Sam Adams about how this is the ideal role for Natalie Portman because she's such a technical actress, which she is, I think, often critiqued for, for being somebody who uh, can sort of nail every every note but but doesn't seem to connect warmly with other actors. That's perfect for this character, right? She's literally playing a kind of chilly, technical actress. Uh, do you see Sam's point that this is kind of Natalie Portman at her apex?
1: Absolutely. And in, what's so weird about it is that you begin the movie thinking, what kind of a performance is she giving? There's something a little brittle and dissociative about this person. And then... You realize that's a mask, and then you see beyond the mask, and then the film becomes this dual portrait of two hearts of darkness, in a way, each equally compelling. I mean, they're both such extraordinary actresses. I mean, you know, Julianne Moore, an exquisitely classically beautiful woman whose face can become this forbidding rictus at the drop of a hat, something that she's been totally unreluctant, willing game to do throughout her career, especially in the Haynes movies, like Safe being one of the great examples. Enormous vulnerability there. And then Natalie Portman, who suffered the awful fate of Elizabeth Taylor, is being construed as the most beautiful woman in the world before she was a woman, who's somehow taken that and, like Taylor, turned it into the career of an actress of serious depth um, and honesty. I thought this was both of them at the top of their game. And then in relation to one another, it was, I, to me, it was just a joy to watch from beginning to end.
0: Yeah, it's really, watching them together is incredible. Um, and and I also just want to shout out the screenplay by Sammy Birch. I think it's her first produced feature. And I think so much of the richness of performance is allowed by just the depth and intelligence of the screenplay. Like, what an interesting movie. You know, if you if you've said, hey... A newcomer screenwriter wants to make a movie about Mary Kay Letourneau. Is this the movie you would imagine? Like, <laughs> yeah, run, no. Run. And it's so original and so well done. So I'm excited to see what's next from uh, Sammy Birch as well.
1: It's a great movie. It's on Netflix. Um, you really ought to watch it and shoot us an email. Really curious to know what people think about it. May, December, a Todd Haynes film. All right, let's, uh, let's move on. Okay, well, The Grinch was published in 1957. So... <laughs> Dan Coyce tells us in his piece about a new Grinch book that was eight months after The Cat in the Hat, as he says. It was at that point unclear what kind of a living Theodore Geisel, a.k.a. Dr. Seuss, was going to make. This one sold into the millions. It's huge. It was, of course, turned into an absolutely classic Christmas time cartoon. And the IP has been mined repeatedly to within an inch of its life. Several live-action films, animated films. Well, now there's a sequel that looks and feels like an original Dr. Seuss book. It's not. It's new. It's uh, written by Alistair Hyam, illustrated by Aristides Ruiz. It's called Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Lost Christmas! Exclamation point. Here to talk about it is Dan Coyce, writer it's Slade and author of the novel Vintage Contemporaries. Dan, welcome back to the show. So glad to be here. So where to begin? I mean, what was it like just reading this book?
2: Well, it's, you know, when you read a sequel to a book that you yourself have read to your kids 10 trillion times, you read it with that eye. You read it with, oh, what would the response be if, if I broke this one out to my once small children um, and tried to get them to go to sleep one night the way that I did many, many years ago with How the Grinch Stole Christmas? And, uh, you know, I regret to inform that this book, the new book, the sequel, can't match that feeling of total astonishment with which small children greet Dr. Seuss's original genius idea of a monster coming down from a fucking mountaintop <laughs> yeah. and stealing Christmas
1: out of your house. Right. It's like making the the insight involved, like the eureka insight involved in making a creature out of whole cloth, non-human creature out of whole cloth, that is the spirit of anti-Christmas, so in excess of the prior holder of that title, Scrooge. Um, I mean, it's just, it is eternal. And then having, you know, having it be unbelievably witty, clever, somehow getting at the essence of Christmas from a completely unexpected angle. And uh, and then to have Boris Karloff... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> voice it in a definitive, uh, Geisel, AKA Dr. Seuss approved cartoon.
0: And they're hanging their stockings. He snarled for the sneer. Tomorrow is Christmas.
4: It's
5: practically here.
1: Just to talk a little bit more about the genius of the first book.
2: Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel came up with it. The Christmas before 1957, he says, or at least according to his biography, um, And he came up with it based on his own grinchiness. He says he looked in the mirror the day after Christmas, he saw this scowling face totally (laughs) irritated by the whole (laughs) holiday and thought, Oh, Oh, that's a book. That's Dr. Seuss right there. Um, he, you know, he worked in advertising for years. He was responsible for a number of unbelievably successful ad campaigns in the thirties and forties, long before he was a successful children's author. And, um, and yet he despised the commercialization of Christmas. It drove him nuts. And so he says he wrote "How the Grinch stole Christmas" as a way to try to uh, you know, reinstill in himself the the actual joy of the season. What gives the book its power, though, I think, is the way that parents, recognize that grinchiness when they're reading it to their kids. We recognize the parts of us that are driven insane by how acquisitive and greedy Christmas makes our children. Um, there's that, you know, that two page spread in the original book of all the who girls and boys playing with their toys. And making insane noise down in whoville mm. and uh and it's like a Hieronymus Bosch nightmare that spread um and so then to have that reading experience with your kids and to see their pure and honest horror at the idea of someone doing this thing to truly the greatest holiday mankind ever invented um is like is pretty bracing as a parent. Um, And, you know, that's where I think the book's elemental power comes from. And that's why it was a gigantic instant hit that completely transformed his life. You know, a couple of years before those two books were published, The Grinch and The Cat in the Hat, he was writing his editor at at Random House being like, do you think maybe I'll make $5,000 this year? Because we really need money. Uh, And then after this, every book he'd ever written was selling in the scores of thousands every single year.
0: So, first of all. I love your analysis of the original Grinch. He's totally right. (laughs) You're right. That's why the book is good. (laughs) I mean, not that, like, he's right, and then when he gets his comeuppance, that's writer. But it's like, if the holiday is all about getting and getting, it sucks. And then if you remember that the whole point of presence is that you're trying to connect with the humans you love and kind of encapsulate the, the... empathy and generosity that you want to extend towards them all year long in you know, their like physical manifestation on one day. You're like, Oh, right, right. You know, like my children, my older children are at the age where they've just discovered that giving gifts is fun and not just getting them. And it's very sweet. And that is part of what the whole thing is about. So hard endorsed to that. I guess I will say that in general, when beloved children's books and children's book authors get reanimated from the dead for sequels, I hate it, generally. You become a because Grinch. I'm Grinchier about that mm-hmm. than about the mm-hmm. consumerification mm-hmm. of Christmas. Because it's awful, and it suggests that... They think the kids can't tell, which they sometimes can't, and that the parents stuck reading this shit can't tell, which we definitely fucking can. And I would just like you to rank, in order of cruddiness, Zombie Seuss, who seems decently represented here. There's also like a whole series of kind of Cat in the Hat. I think they're like maybe TV-explanatory, lesson-giving TV shows turned into the books, where the Cat in the Hat is uh, no longer a maniacal force of chaos like Loki in animated form and instead is just like a a kind of friendly teacher who tells you in deeply unseus-worthy rhyme about like protozoas or whatever. Um, So those are horrible. But even worse than those are zombie Curious George where you can really tell in like the just heft of the work what is an original Curious George and what is a pedantic... Simpering, idiotic (laughs) follow-up. So I just, I would extend to the group broadly, like why, there's just like a lack of seriousness extended to the picture book reader, I will say now that I'm back in that chair, um, that drives me bananas. Like why does this book need to exist? This this Grinch follow-up, it's a perfect book. There's plenty of Seuss. I'm sure the Seuss estate is making plenty of money. Like leave the Grinch alone.
4: Yeah, I totally hear you, Julia. I feel like I don't even consider the Babar books written by Laurent de Brunhoff, (laughs) the son of the original author Jean de Brunhoff, to be real. I don't even want to talk about the ones that are like Mm. Babar does yoga or something like that, that are just written by some (laughs) random team of consultants. But uh, but but Dan, I wanted to ask you to that effect to talk about the, the poetry, the writing in this new—well, for one thing, just the story, the basic story, because since Julia's talking about moralizing, I think this new story is more of a kind of morality play and a less convincing one than the first book. So I would like you to just outline what the story of this book is and talk a little bit about the writing by Alistair Heim, which is written—it looks to me like it's written in Seussian prosody, right? It, it, it scans like a Seuss. But it doesn't sound like a Seuss. So can you talk about that, the story and the way it's told?
2: Sure. So that, you know, Alistair Heim had a big problem, which is that not only is How the Grinch Stole Christmas a more or less perfect book, it also has a perfect ending and an ending that eliminates from possibility all future conflict between the Grinch and the Who's of Whoville. Um, But so you have this conundrum, which is, all right, the Grinch now loves Christmas. His heart has grown whatever, seven sizes, and now he's just like a good guy. So how do you make drama out of that? And the way the book handles that is by having the Grinch be determined this year. It is now the year after the year that he stole and then discovered the meaning of Christmas. This year he's going to prove to all the Who's that no one loves Christmas more than he. So he enters the Whoville Christmas Tree Decorating Contest, uh, a contest so important it is Front page news, the A1 (laughs) story in the Whoville Times. And uh, he enters the contest. He decorates his tree. He brings it down with the help of his dog, Max. And then he loses the contest to Cindy Lou Who, you know, little tot Cindy Lou, uh, who was no more than two last year. Uh, And he uh, pitches a fit. He's a sore loser. He gets really angry that he lost. He storms back up to his mountain, his heart shrinking in his chest. And then Cindy Lou tells him, Mr. Grinch, I put ornaments from everyone in Whoville on this tree who loves Christmas, but there's one ornament I haven't put on yet, and it's yours. Can you please come back? And then his heart grows again, and he goes down. And he accepts that Cindy Lou, a child, is allowed to win the Christmas tree decorating contest, and then he loves Christmas again. And the problem, you know, there's a lot of problems with this plot, but the most basic one is that there's like nothing elementally evil and amazing about it. It's just that he doesn't like losing, which I'll grant you is like very recognizable to the children to whom you might be reading this book, but it doesn't have any actual power. It's so recognizable that it doesn't have that like alien, impossible, monster, nightmare force of the original book. The poetry is like fine and it's meant to ape Seuss to the extent that it even recreates Certain moments in the original book, it, you know the moment in the original when the Grinch has this wonderful, awful idea is now recreated in this book as the Grinch getting a, an awfully crafty idea to make a beautiful Christmas tree, and so it's I think it's perfectly pleasant to read aloud, but the thing it doesn't deliver is what is so great about the original book, which is the the sense in your audience that something impossible is happening, um, you know, that's not there anymore. And that's what I think you really miss.
1: All right. Well, Dan, uh, you're an EFOP. You're just an exceedingly exceptional friend of this program. It's always great to talk to you. Your piece is up on Slate now. It's Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Lost Christmas in Defense of the Grinch by Dan Coyce. Dan, thanks for coming back on the show. Just so fun.
2: A Merry Christmas to all.
1: All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Diana, what do you uh, you have?
4: Steve, I'm going to endorse. This this is sort of a two-part endorsement, but they go together like wine and cheese. So I'm going to endorse the Pogue's album, If I Should Fall, from Grace with God, uh, (sighs) in honor of the passing of Shane McGowan, incredible songwriter and frontman for that band. And along with it, this is the cheese to go with that wine, is Amanda Petrusik from The New Yorker wrote a really, really beautiful little tribute to, to Shane McGowan that was one of many things, including his music, that made me cry last week, um, knowing that he had left us at the age of, of 65. He is too big of a figure with too big of a career to, to get into it all now. And I think we've even talked about the Pogues before on the show, maybe, at least in, in an endorsement segment I'm sure. here or there. Yeah. Uh, and the reason I wanted to to choose one of his early albums is just because something that really struck me on reading that he had, had died at 65 is that he was so young when he wrote these songs that have this incredible world wisdom and this sense of this like, hard-won truth to them— and uh, it's a little bit like like Tom Waits, where it's sort of like this person is such an old soul. You can't believe that they wrote the songs that they wrote when he was, I guess, probably in his early thirties when that album came out, and was always someone who seemed. I never saw them play live, but every story of the Pokes playing live was sort of people couldn't believe that Shane McGowan, who was an alcoholic and I think at one point a drug addict and just like someone who took such horrible, horrible care of his physical self, they couldn't believe that he had made it to the stage, yeah. you know, for another show. Yeah. And so, really, for him. Making it to sixty five was was quite an incredible feat. Uh, anyway, I mean, what I'm really recommending is that people just go on their own deep dive and listen to the Pogues in whatever way they want to. But uh, but that seems like a good album to break into listening to them with, although it's not their first.
1: Okay, favorite Pogue song? Pick one. Oh
4: my gosh. I'll say Rainy Night in Soho. That's a poke yeah, saw. Seriously? Is mean, that, I, that I, could be your favorite? It's that
1: saying? or Lullaby of London, probably. I mean, those both are mm-hmm. both. But bo- Rainy Night in Soho is the one shots over and over again inexhaustibly. I
0: took shelter from a shower. And I stepped into your arms.
5: On a rainy night in Soho.
4: and that's one that's not even on the album I just mentioned that is on their first album, yeah, that's Rum's on, Otomy and from Sotomy in the
1: last yeah uh, Dana, thank you so much for for doing that that's that's really wonderful to hear you talk about Shane McGowan rest in peace um Julia, what do you have?
0: I've got a two part endorsement based off of our segment about the Grinch and wavering towards children's books. The first is I want to endorse the Little Blue Truck books, um, which are written by Alice Shirtle and, uh, and were originated in their illustration by Jill McElmurray, who was a listener to this show until her death in 2017. And her estate gave permission uh, to continue the Little Blue Truck books with an illustrator working in her style and her name is still on the front of them um, with a note about the illustration style and I have the the illustration style is perceptibly different for sure but um, somehow that seemed like a respectful extension of the work she'd created to me Um, and I just wanted to I, I always appreciated knowing that she was a listener when I was reading those books to my older kids and, and thinking of her again, reading them to my youngest one. So we just wanted to shout that out. Um, and then I also have to name my favorite Seuss, which is a lesser known Seuss, uh, which is hunches and bunches. I may have endorsed it before. Cause I know we've talked about Seuss on the show, but um, the thing I love about theater Geisel's work is the, it's Beyonce like in its excellence <laughs> because the illustrations are incredible and vivid and of their own brilliance. The, the things he is doing with Meter are insane and so consistent and and so um, inimitable. And then the themes are often inventive and worthwhile. Like mm. so often in a children's book, you get two of the three You get beautiful illustrations and an interesting point, but the language is insipid. Or you get rollicking language and an interesting point, but the thing is stupid to look at. Like, it's really hard to nail that trifecta. And Hunches and Bunches is one of my favorites because it's lesser known. And it's about that feeling of childhood boredom and not quite knowing what you want to do. It's essentially a children's book about malaise. And it's Mm. brilliant. So if you don't know that
1: one, pick it up. Julia, you're so right, all three elements. And then to do it over and over and over again, right? Iconically, Green Eggs and Ham, The Lorax, One Fish, Two Fish, Horton here is a Who, Sneetches. Like, it's the consistency in addition to the singularity and eccentricity of the genius
4: i love him being the beyonce of children's books it's, <laughs> it's so <like> true <laughs> so, crazy. It's so
1: good okay so this is up there with like i just discovered the sky is blue and the beatles are like this really good band you should check them out but um i finally belatedly shame really shamefully belatedly saw the documentary paris is burning and i saw it without prior to even knowing that we we were going to do the beyonce documentary but pair beautifully if you've never seen Paris is Burning. For those who don't know, it's a nineteen ninety documentary about the the ball scene, the drag ball scene in New York City over the course of the eighties. It took the filmmaker Jenny Livingston years to make it. I think she was Yale affiliated. I can't remember. She was very young. And it it just truly one of the greatest documentaries ever made, absolutely pioneering for It's totally sympathetic portrayal of uh, the drag subculture of New York City. It, It brings you back to the city that those of us who knew it then remember the 1980s. You know, you're sort of it's an amazing decade in the history of the city because you're beyond the taxi driver apocalypse of the 70s. Right. Ford to. New York dropped dead, Ford of the City dropped dead. You're beyond that, right? You're, you've walked away from the brink, but you aren't in the Giuliani city of the 90s, the Disneyfication and then the, God, not to mention the fucking plutocratic sellout of uh, of what's-his-face Bloomberg. You know, you're in the this kind of weird zone in between both cities where it's gritty and tough and the rents are still cheap and subcultures and and, and bohemias can really still thrive. And this one was as autonomously self-generated as any subculture this country's ever seen. And in the face of so much hatred and uh, AIDS, and, and AIDS not only destroying this community in some respects, though not totally, I mean, the resilience was incredible, but the hatred surrounding queer culture because of AIDS, it's just so powerfully moving and it's a monument to the incorrigibility of the human personality and spontaneity of the human personality. Um, and it, you could argue it culminates, I mean, it has an integrity totally all its own and it didn't need mainstream culture or pop superstar divas to dignify it. But to the extent that Beyonce is drawing upon that tradition in her work, uh, in an honorable way. It's amazing to go back and watch this movie and see it in um, in its kind of original form. Anyway, Paris is Burning. What can I say? It's It's like one of the most moving things I've ever seen. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you dana thank you thanks steve really fun show excellent i really enjoyed it you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page that's slate.com slash culture you can email us at culturefest at slate.com our introductory music is by the composer nicholas pertell our production assistant is kat hong our producer is cameron drews for dana stevens and julia turner i'm stephen metcalf thank you so much for joining us we will see you soon